But this is it. And, and normally, you save the best for last, right? I mean, you've heard that, that expression before, that, well, they're saving the best for last. That's not the way this one works. In fact, in this particular letter, it's unique and stands out amongst all of them because there is nothing good that Jesus has to say about the church here in Laodicea. And yet, even still, in the midst of a letter full of critique, full of the negative, full of what to avoid, we learn a lot as we think about planting this church of what we don't want to be like. So take your Bibles, open up to Revelation chapter 3. I'm going to read the letter, we'll talk about the city, and then we'll dive into the text. John records from Jesus, And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You're neither hot nor cold. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire, so that you may be rich, and white garments, so that you may clothe yourself, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes, so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him, to eat with him, and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Laodicea as a city, you'll see there that image on the screen will come into factor. That's a, an aqueduct that carried water to the city at one time. That's actually an image taken from the ruins there in Laodicea. But Laodicea was named for Laodice or Laodice, or I don't know how you said her name originally, but she was the wife of Antiochus II. And so uh, it was founded around the, the, the second, mid-2nd century B.C., and named for Laodice, the, the wife of Antiochus II. It was an incredibly wealthy city. So this makes it stand out in contrast to the city that we looked at last week with Philadelphia, in the sense that Philadelphia really was an impoverished city. Remember, it was a small church with not a lot of power in a small city with not a lot of wealth. Well, Laodicea is kind of the, the exact opposite. Laodicea is a, a wealthy city, so much so that an earthquake that hit there in AD 60, about 30 years prior to the letter that Jesus is writing here, that earthquake caused a lot of damage, as it did to many towns in the area. Laodicea denied imperial help to rebuild the city. They said, no, we'll take care of it ourselves. And not only that, but they also went to the surrounding cities in their immediate region and helped them rebuild. So this is a city with a lot of wealth. They were famous for a couple of things in particular. One, their jet black wool. So if you think of wool, wool is typically not jet black, right? They had a shiny, glossy black method of, of, of dyeing this wool that was unique, and, and, and that was one of their leading exports in their area was this black wool. And then the other thing that they were known for is actually an, a school of medicine there that specialized in ophthalmology, and they had an eye salve that they would uh, export as well from this city that was meant to help people with, uh, with blindness and other matters there where uh, their eyesight would be afflicted. 
One of their major weaknesses, though, in the city, as we're just talking about the city and not the church, was that they were completely dependent upon outside sources for water. They didn't have any natural sources within the city to have water there in the city. That's going to play a part in what Jesus says here. As to the church, what do we know about the church? Well, we believe that it was not necessarily founded by Paul, but Epaphras was sent out by Paul in Colossians chapter 1 to evangelize the area wherein we find Laodicea. And so we believe that maybe it was even Epaphras that planted this church. Uh, Paul didn't plant it himself. He admitted as much in Colossians 2.1. He said, I haven't yet visited the church in Laodicea there. He desired to, but he hadn't yet been able to visit them. So we know it wasn't planted by Paul. And yet it was the recipient of a letter from Paul, Colossians chapter 4. You've probably encountered the church of Laodicea without even realizing that you encountered the church of Laodicea because it's tucked towards the end of this letter to the Colossians where we kind of begin to lay on the plane as we're doing our daily Bible reading and we've, we've, we're already thinking about the next book in, in the Bible. But Paul says there in Colossians 4, he says, When this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans. And see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. Uh, there's debate. People have, have spent a lot of time trying to figure out what was the letter from Laodicea. End of the day, we don't know. Some are, are questioning whether or not this was even the letter to the Ephesians that first went to the Laodiceans and then was spread throughout the region. Either way, they were a, a church that was on the map, at least. They were known in the area. They were known by Paul. That brings us to the greeting. Revelation chapter 3, verse 14. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea writes, the angel of the church, the pastor of the church, the messenger of the church, Angelos, messenger, pastor, the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. The words of the amen. Amen, we, we say it at the end of our prayers. Amen is a word in the Greek that means verily or truly or let it be so. That's why we say that at the end of our prayers. We're saying, God, let this be is, is what we're saying there. Let it be true. Let it become a reality. It, it's a word, though, that, that comes out of the concept of just truth. And so Jesus is saying that he is the, the amen, right? If we go back to the Old Testament, and not just the Old Testament, but even in the New Testament, multiple times. But here you go, Isaiah 65, 16. Write that verse down. You can go up and look it up later. But twice in Isaiah 65, 16, God refers to himself as the God of truth. The God of truth. And so Jesus is saying that about himself when he says, I am the amen. He's saying, I'm the true one. I am the, 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 the ultimate reality. In fact, you may be thinking about 2 Corinthians 1, 20, where it says that all the promises of God find their what? Their yes and amen in who? In Jesus he is the amen. He is the reliable one, the trustworthy one. This is going to stand out in comparison to the church, which is not full of a lot of people that are, are trustworthy in their profession, trustworthy in their testimony. Jesus is contrasting himself. And he goes on and he says even more so, he is the faithful and true witness. There weren't a lot of faithful and true witnesses there in the church in Laodicea. Jesus is the faithful and true witness. In other words, his testimony, everything that he says is reliable. Everything that he's about to write to this church, they need to listen to because he's the amen and the faithful and true witness. And so Jesus is setting the stage with his greeting. And then he goes on and he says, finally, the beginning of God's creation. Emergency breaks, right? Going off in your mind. The beginning of God's creation. Wait a minute. I thought he wasn't created. He wasn't created. But think about Colossians uh, chapter one, where Jesus is called the firstborn of all creation. You know which passage I'm talking about there, right? 
So Colossians 1, Jesus is called the firstborn of all creation. Well, we got to do a little bit of contextual work there because the firstborn meant that he held the highest rank, okay? The firstborn son had the highest rank in the family. He was due the greatest share of the inheritance. He had the highest position of honor. So when Paul wrote firstborn son, he wasn't talking in chronological order. He was talking about his rank, that Jesus is of all creation. He is the, the, the chief. He is the superior one. As Paul goes on to say in Colossians 1, he is preeminent. He is first place in everything. And here Jesus is echoing that sentiment himself when he says that he is the beginning of God's creation. He is the firstborn. He is the one of utmost and highest rank. In Proverbs 8.22, it's speaking of wisdom there, though a lot of people believe, and there's debate, but a lot of people believe that this is perhaps a personification of Jesus as wisdom is personified in Proverbs 8. And in Proverbs 8.22, it says, The Lord, Yahweh, possessed me at the beginning of his work. At the beginning of his work. If that's a personification of Jesus, then the reference there is the fact that Jesus was there at the beginning of God's creative work, which would imply that he's also there before the beginning of his creative work because he's the uncreated one. So this is not Jesus saying that he is part of God's creation, but that he is the beginning. He is the, the, the utmost. He is the chief one of all in all of God's creation. The commendation. The commendation. Look back at your Bibles. All right, ready? Here you go. There's no commendation. Jesus doesn't have anything that he's going to write to this church to commend them about. Even Sardis, the church, you remember Jesus said to the, the church in Sardis, hey, you've got the reputation of being alive, but the reality is you're dead. Even in the church in Sardis, there was something that Jesus commended about that church. Still, you have some amongst you who have not soiled their garments. It's not so with the church in Laodicea. There's nothing for Jesus to commend this church for. Nothing at all. And so he moves instead straight to the condemnation. He says in verse 15, I know your works. Okay, we've heard that phrase multiple times. And sometimes it leads to Jesus saying, you've done these good things. Not so here. He says, I know your works. In other words, I know your pattern of life. I know what characterizes you. I know who you are, is what Jesus is saying. And he says, what characterizes you, who you are, you are neither cold nor hot. Would, if only, in other words, I, I wish, I would desire that you were either cold or hot. In Laodicea at the time, there was a cliff that was visible from the city, and the cliff had a calcium deposit that had built up over it because there was hot water that would come from a hot spring up on the, from a city on top of that cliff, and it would come cascading over that cliff and eventually make its way down to the city of Laodicea. But the problem was, by the time it reached the city of Laodicea, it wasn't hot like it had been at its origin. It had cooled along the way, but it hadn't cooled to become to the point of, of refreshing. It was just simply a, a lukewarm, stagnant pool of water. My wife and I will go for a walk on Mondays and, and sometimes on Saturday mornings, and, and we'll walk by, and a lot of times right outside of this one development, there's, the sprinklers must be broken or something, but there's just this pool of just gross-looking water. And as hot as it is sometimes on that walk, I'm not tempted one bit to dip my thermos into that water and drink any of that water. I don't want it. It's gross, right? That was this water that would come cascading over this cliff. But uh, maybe you've heard this message from this church, and you've heard it growing up in youth ministry, and I remember it, and it was a, it's a fav favorite passage for youth pastors because Jesus talks about vomit in this passage. And so every youth pastor has been like, you know what, I'm not going to preach a whole lot out of Revelation, not going to touch that with a 10-foot pole, but I'm going to preach about puke, right? So they'll preach this passage, 
But here's what they'll do. They'll say, you know what Jesus is saying here? Jesus is saying, you know what? I wish that you were on one side of the fence or the other, but you're just straddling the fence. I wish you would either reject me or that you would, you would be all in with me. I grew up and I heard that message. Maybe you grew up and you heard that message at some point in time. That's not what Jesus is talking about here. This passage is not about your spiritual temperature, either being hot, all in for Jesus, or cold, rejecting Jesus. And in fact, if, if we'll just spend a little bit of time with some logic, that doesn't make any sense, does it? Why in the world would Jesus wish that somebody would outright full-on reject him and turn away from him? In fact, if they were to do that, why would they be any better off than the person who's lukewarm, who's straddling the fence? They're both in trouble at the end of the day. And, and so this is not about whether or not someone is on fire for Christ or someone has rejected Jesus. Instead, there's something else going on here. There's another way of interpreting this that requires us to dig in a little bit to the area, the historical region, the geographical region wherein Laodicea lay. I mentioned that, that water that would come cascading over the top. Well, there was a, a city at the top of that cliff called Hierapolis. And Hierapolis was known for its hot springs. And much like today, if you've been over to Arkansas, there's hot springs in Arkansas and there's hot springs in, in parts of Texas as well. People will still flock to them today because they believe that there's a, a medicinal quality about them. They believe that they are, are restorative and, and that there's something that's good for you and good for your health to go in the, the hot spring water there. So Hierapolis was, was up above Laodicea there and it had the hot springs and it was known for being a place of healing. People would go there and they would seek it out because it would, it would bring that restorative element to their, their health. Not far away from there and not far away still from Laodicea was another town that you've heard of before, Colossae. Colossae is the, the, the city where the letter to the Colossians was written. And Colossae was known not for its hot springs, but Colossae was known because it had a, a fresh spring that was nice and crisp and cold and pure that would come bubbling up from underground. And so Colossae had the, the, the pure, cold water that came out fresh from the source. And so it would be a place of refreshment. You'd go there and you'd get that cold water just like when you come in from a hot day working in the yard or you come in from a walk or a run or something and you want that crisp, cool water and you drink it and it just it brings that refreshment to your, your body, right? Colossae was known for that cold, crisp, pure, cool water. Then you had Laodicea. They were in the middle and they didn't have either one. And they were dependent on these aqueducts that were built to pipe water into the city. Well, by the time the water got to the city from Colossae, it was cold at its source. But by the time that it got to, to Laodicea, it was lukewarm because it had had to travel so long. And, and then the hot, refreshing, healing water, right, that would bring restoration to people's health. By the time that got to Laodicea from, from up in Hierapolis, it also had become lukewarm. And so Jesus is writing to this church, saying to this church, you're just like your city. You're not cold and refreshing to people. You're not healing to people. You're simply lukewarm. You've become useless. You don't have that refreshing quality that a church can have when you walk into a church and there's just that life-giving element where, where you are encouraged by brothers and sisters in Christ and built up by them and, and you leave wanting to follow Jesus more passionately because you've been around those believers. Church in Laodicea, you're not doing that. But you're also not the church where people who are hurting and wounded and, and struggling and depressed and downcast can come and find the message of hope 
and encouragement and where they can come and weep with those who weep and they can come and be loved and served and you're not that either. You just kind of are, are, are there and you're not doing what you should be doing. And so Jesus says to them, would if only you were either cold or hot. In other words, he's saying, I'm, I'm, I'm not asking you to bat a thousand. I'm not asking you to bat, uh, you know, a hundred on this, hundred percent on this and, and, and do both. I just, I, if you did one of them, I'd be happy with it. He's saying, you're, you're not doing either. And it's a challenge to us, right? It's a, it's a challenge to us to ask the question, okay, what, what benefit am I providing to the body of Christ? Am, am I that source of cool refreshment to other believers? Am I causing people to love Jesus more? as a result of being around me? Do they leave conversations with me fired up about loving Jesus and pursuing him? Or maybe, am I that person that can really empathize with somebody who's suffering and in sorrow? And am I doing that? Am I coming alongside? Am I loving? Am I helping someone there? In 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 20 and 21, Paul writes this to Timothy. 2 Timothy 2, 20 through 21, he says, Now in a great house... He says, there's not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay. He says, some vessels in the great house are for honorable use and some for dishonorable. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. Y'all, that needs to be our aim as a church that we want to be useful to the master of this house, the master of this house being Jesus. We want to be a church full of brothers and sisters in Christ who are useful to Jesus, who are cold or hot, that, that have that refreshing quality or that ability to come and, and, and love somebody who needs that support and that care and that love. And so as we think about that, it's important for us to think individually as we think corporately that individually we need to start by thinking we want to be useful to the body of Christ. And that's our first point tonight. Be useful to the body of Christ. Be useful to the body of Christ. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 14 through 20, which we'll talk about in our next series that we're doing after this one, as we get ready for our launch, we're going to do a series called the, the Pre-Launch Checklist. And we're going to be going through a bunch of different concepts as we get ready to launch this church. One of them is going to be serving in the church. But just fitting in here with what we're talking about here, the Apostle Paul says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 14 through 20. He says, For the, the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, Because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body. That would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I don't belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. You've heard that before, I, I, I assume. Maybe not. But for us to be a vibrant and healthy church, for us to be a church useful to the Lord, it begins with us being useful as individuals to him. It begins with us all coming here and, and, and playing a part and playing a role. Realizing that, that we have something to offer. 
realizing that, that we have something to bring to the table. Like I said, we're going to do a whole sermon on this in the, the, the near future here. But maybe you're out there going, well, I, I'm, I'm in, but what does that look like? Well, I'm glad that you asked because look up just momentarily on the screen. And this was just really quick on the fly as I was preparing for the sermon. These are just some areas that I can think of of where we're going to need people to serve and be useful to the body of Christ in the immediate short term here. We've got two more Sundays here in this room. And then after that, we're moving to Sunday mornings at Founders Classical Academy where we're going to be doing church in and out of a trailer every week. Two trailers, but still, you get the point. We're going to need help setting up and tearing down. We're going to need help with kids ministry. We're going to launch a student ministry midweek starting around the same time. We're going to need help with the student ministry. We're going to need help being with, with ushers, making sure people come in and, and know where to sit down. We're going to need help with greeters, hospitality. We're going to need people to cut donuts in half because that's what we do at Compass. You'll know. If you're a visitor here and you haven't been to one of our services, you'll be like, why can't I have a whole donut? You can't. Just come back twice, okay? We're going to need people on the worship team. We're going to need people on the tech team. Right? You can look at that list and, and, and see that there, we're going to need people. You have a part to play in what we're doing here. And, and we can't do it by ourselves. You don't want to come to the church that's just Pastor Rod and I. I promise you. But you do want to come to the church where all of us are, are chipping in. Where all of us are pulling in that same direction. Where all of us are being useful to the body of Christ. You know, when I was in ninth grade, I was on the football team. Don't laugh, I was. Went to a private Christian school and they took pity on me. So I was on the football team and they made me center. I'm like, what are you thinking? Like at that point, I was like 130 pounds dripping wet. Maybe. Well, as it were, as God is sovereign and kind, I ended up with stress fractures in my back and uh, was not able to play. And I still dressed in, in the, the jersey and jeans and, and went to every game and, uh, and was on the sideline for the JV. And our, our t- I don't even remember what our record was, but I remember this distinctly, and I'll never forget this. And it's helped me because I've used this sermon illustration multiple times. So though the coach was a little bit of, of a not nice guy, what he said has served the kingdom. So I'm thankful for that. We won our last game, and I remember all my buddies and everybody else was running out on the field celebrating, and I went to go celebrate with them. And one of the coaches looked at me and he said, what are you doing? You didn't do anything okay, well, I'm going to go play soccer. I'll show you. I'm going to go play soccer instead. And that's what I did. But that stuck with me. But in as harsh as it was, I, I can't say that he was wrong. I, I wasn't on the field. I was on the sideline. I wasn't calling plays from the sideline. I was just there wearing a jersey, number 57, taking up a spot but not contributing. This church was full of people taking up a spot but not contributing. People on the sideline. And nobody was on the field. And here's the thing. I couldn't get on the field at that time. You guys can get on the field. In fact, we're we're pleading and imploring you. Get on the field with us. We need you. You've got a part to play. You've got a role to play. And we don't want Jesus to come back to anyone and say, why are you celebrating my return? You didn't do anything. And that's where this church was in danger. Not that we do something to merit our salvation. Okay, that's not what I'm saying. But what I'm saying is this church had not even done the work of saying, I'm going to trust Christ with everything that I am as my Lord and Savior. They just wanted to be on the sideline wearing the jersey. 
Jesus wasn't wishing that people would be openly hostile to him. He was just simply wishing, imploring that this church would be the church. And that's what we want to make sure that we're going to do. We want to be useful to the body of Christ. The condemnation continued as his response to their spiritual lukewarmness was the same as those who would drink that tepid water in Laodicea. He goes on in verse 16 and he says this. He says, so because you are lukewarm, you're neither hot and healing or cold and refreshing. I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. I love coffee, right? I just do. I love coffee. It, I, I, people fast from coffee. I'm like, why? It's, a, it's like a common grace from God that he's given us here to be enjoyed. Like fast from something else. Leave coffee alone, okay? So if you're here and you love coffee and you're worried that your pastor is going to stand up one week and go, hey, you, we're on a coffee fast all week, you're good. You're in the right place. I love coffee, but I love my coffee either to be hot and fresh or cold. One of the worst things is going to a cup of coffee and picking it up and expecting nice warm coffee and just getting lukewarm coffee. It makes you want to go to the sink. In fact, I often do and just spit it out in the sink. It's not good. It's not what it's supposed to be. It's, it's off-putting, right? Nobody wants water that's been sitting out on the, the counter or sitting outside all day long and it's just lukewarm or in Texas it's boiling at that point. But <laughs> nobody wants that. You, you want it to be fresh when you go to, to drink it. That's what Jesus was saying about this church in Laodicea. And I want us to catch that. I want us to feel this. This is a serious, serious problem that needed to be addressed while there was still time to repent. And that's what Jesus says here. And we miss it in the English, but it's there in the Greek. Jesus here in the English says, I will spit you out of my mouth. That sounds like it's a foregone conclusion. Like it's dumb. Like Jesus, okay, he's going to spit him out. He's ready to do that. In the Greek, it's, he's saying, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. It's a subtle difference, but the difference is there nonetheless. In other words, even this church, Jesus out of his love for them, is giving them an opportunity to repent. He's giving them an opportunity to actually come to faith in him as their savior. He's calling them to actually be the church. He says, I'm, I'm about to do this if you don't repent. What would produce this reaction of disgust from Jesus? What was actually going on here in this church? What did this lukewarmness look like? Was it just spiritual immaturity? I don't think so because I think he would have said like the writer of Hebrews said, hey, by now you should be a lot further along than you are. Why aren't you further along? Let's go. Let's kick it into gear. But he wouldn't say, I'm going to spit you out. You disgust me. Well, maybe this is just a group of people that have just kind of expressed interest in Christianity. They're, 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 maybe these are just seekers. They're just interested in Christianity and, and they're, they're on their way. No, because I, I think he would have exhorted them, hey, you know what? Let's, let's go. Leave off the world and, 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 and come and follow me. In, instead, who is this group? I, I think this group is, is fraudulent Christians. I think these are people claiming Christ and living a life that completely denies him. I think these people are, are doing more harm to the kingdom than they are good to the kingdom. And Jesus is disgusted by it. The fraudulence. You remember the parable that Jesus told at the end of the Sermon on the Mount about the two houses? The, they look the same on the outside. You look at the two houses, you would have said, oh, look at those two houses. Those are, 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 are really nice. 
They look the same from the outside. Storm comes against them, blows against those houses. One stands and the other doesn't. Which one stands? The one that did what? Heard the word and did what? And did it, applied it, lived it out. The word of God was transformative, beginning with the word himself, Christ being transformative. The other house, they just wanted to look the part, but they were built on nothing. That's this church. And that's what draws the ire of Jesus He goes on and describes the lukewarmness in verse 17. He says, you say, I am rich, I've prospered, I need nothing. Not realizing the true state that's there, spiritually speaking, you're you're, you're poor, you're wretched, you're pitiable, you're blind, and you're naked. These are are nominal Christians. And here's the, the, the thing. I think they would have blended in really well in North Texas. They had it all, right? They were affluent. They were successful. What they craved for themselves, they went out and got for themselves. There was nothing that they didn't have. And yet that's exactly what Jesus is trying to show them, is that there's the greatest thing that they didn't have. You say you have it all, and yet the reality, Jesus is saying, is you have nothing. They boasted, I am rich and I have become rich, which means, look at my, I've done this myself. Their pride, their arrogance, saying, I'm responsible for all the good things that I have in my life. Jesus told a parable in Luke chapter 12, verses 16 through 21, that I think is similar to what we find with this church. He told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. Look at all these blessings that I've brought in myself. And he said, I will do this. I'm going to tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and all my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. And what's the message from God? You fool. All your trust was in yourself. All your trust was in your pride. All your trust was in in your accomplishments. And what good are they? Because he says, this night your soul is required of you. And the things that you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. That's what Jesus was trying to get this church to understand. Sure, you've got earthly treasure. Sure, you're comfortable. Sure, you've got it made from a worldly perspective. But you are impoverished towards God. And he's trying to get them to see that he is the wealth, that he is the riches, that he is the treasure. And he's offering himself to them. This church had grown complacent. And they were in a dangerous position. Our second point tonight is this. We need to beware of that. Beware of the complacency of comfort. Beware of the complacency of comfort. Complacency will often produce comfort which will lead to compromise. Or rather, comfort produces the complacency that leads to compromise. And and, and here's the thing. Let's be honest with ourselves. We live in a good area, don't we, church? In fact, I was laughing the other day when I I read an article about one of the leading crimes right now in Prosper. You know what it is? People are stealing manhole covers. Like, that's what they're trying to alert the, the Prosper people about. Hey, careful. You might fall in a hole in the sidewalk. Look out. It's not lock your doors because... Somebody's going to break in and rob you and kill your family. In fact, I go to our neighborhood gym sometimes, and, and the kids will be there, and they'll, they'll leave their bikes 
just outside, and I walk by, and I'm like, that, that bike doesn't have a lock on it. I've never been tempted to steal a bike, but I'm like, if I was, wouldn't be hard. Why do they do that? Because there's, there's no threat. We live in a comfortable area. In fact, we've got a, a governor right now who, by God's grace, is somewhat of a friend to the church as well. Our community is clean and new, and, and it's easy for us to sit back and go, we've got everything we need. And if we're not careful, we will grow complacent in that. Uh, one of our pastors back in Aliso Viejo, who will rename nameless, but his initials are Pastor Lucas Pace. <laughs> he uh, is one of my best friends, and yet I, I don't love traveling with him because he travels all the time for, for, for work. He goes on our mission trips, so he, he's gone overseas. He's earned this, but he has like the, 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 the Delta Lounge like pass. So we'll go to the airport, and, and he'll be like, I'm, I'm, I'll see you later, and he'll just leave us, like us like peons on the outside, and he goes into the Delta Lounge and just puts his feet up while we wait outside for everything else. And he comes out like with his hot bowl of like soup and, and his robe and his slippers on as we're, and he like laughs at us, and he's also got pre-check and everything else, but but he goes back there and just waits for the flight, and he's comfortable back there. Y'all, that's not the church. We're not here to wait for the flight. We're here to do the work. We're here to do what God wants us to do. We're here to be the church. And if we're not careful, the comfort that, that we see around us can lead to the same complacency and the same stagnancy that's here with this church, the lukewarmness that's here with this church. We need to be a church, y'all, where, where people would miss us if we ever were to shut our doors here. We need to be that kind of a church. We need to be a church where, where we're involved in our community. Here's where that starts. That starts in the homes. Dads, I'm talking to you tonight. That starts with you leading your families, loving your families well. Husbands, leading your families, loving your families well, pointing them to Jesus. It starts with strong homes. That's, that's one of the backbones that's going to be the health of our church. Strong, godly homes. It then goes to our neighborhoods. Your neighborhood is a mission field, and it's not my mission field unless I'm your next-door neighbor. I'm looking at you, our saves. Your neighborhood is unique to you. You've got a mission field with the people that God has put in your community. Are you being the church, the extension of the church to the people in your neighborhood? And then let's think beyond that to our community, right? There's community events that are happening all the time. I, I love that. Salina is, their slogan is life connected. And you know what? They're backing it up. They've got things going on all over the place. We're working right now to try to get some booths at the upcoming 4th of July uh, events that are going to be taking place in the cities. There's one in Prosper, there's one in Salina, there's one in Frisco. We're trying to be at all three of them as a church because we want to be involved in the community because we want to begin to make that impact. We want to be doing things. We're not here to just do this. We're not here to just gather together in this holy huddle week in and week out and, and be comfortable here because it's comfortable here. We're here to be the hands and feet of Christ in our community. We're here to love people. We're here to be the church. We're here to carry out the mission of the church, to know Christ and make him known. That's what we're here to do. And we need to make sure that just because we're comfortable in this, we're not sidelining ourselves on that. But that we're being the church. We saw that. I saw that this week. I'm not going to call anybody out, but there was somebody this week who got caught out in the storm, that huge, massive storm that had some of y'all from California packing your U-Haul to go back, right? <laughs> No, but there was somebody caught out in that storm, and, and this family, they got a flat tire. And there was somebody else here in our church that said, you know what, I'm going to be the hands and feet of Christ. I'm going to love our church well. They got in their car, they drove out, they picked up the family and took them home so that the husband could wait for the tire to be changed and, and then go home himself. Y'all, that's what we need to be doing. 
Stuff like that. Loving each other well like that. We need to be healing to some and refreshing to others. We need to be the church, cold or hot, not lukewarm. Well, Jesus didn't leave them with just that punch in the face. He then gives them the counsel. So then what do they need to do? Verse 18, I counsel you, I advise you, I implore you, I urge you, buy from me gold refined by fire. You say you're rich, but here's what you need. You need true riches. Come to me, buy gold refined by fire so that you may be actually rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and not have the shame of your nakedness and salve to anoint your eyes. Remember one thing that they were known for was that school of ophthalmology that had the, the salve that they would sell to people in their surrounding areas. He's like, that's nothing. That addresses physical sight. You need something for your spiritual sight. Buy for me the salve to anoint your eyes. The church that needed nothing needed something only found in Jesus. And that's what Jesus was trying to get them to see. And it's our third and final point tonight. It's this, humbly seek what only Jesus can provide. Humbly seek what only Jesus can provide. Jesus rebuffs the self-confidence of this church. The self-deception of this church by exhorting them to come to him for three things. The first one, as we read, is gold refined by fire. This would be pure gold. No impurities there, no dross, as it were. In 1 Peter 1, 7, we read, So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in the praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The faith that is the pure gold. So what is Jesus beckoning them to do? He's beckoning them to come to trust him as their savior, to come to him in faith, in saving faith. Come and buy from me this pure gold. Second thing that he advises them is, is to buy from him these white garments, to come and be dressed in white garments. This is the, the righteousness of Christ. He's talked in earlier letters in this series about those that had stained garments. The stained garments would disqualify a person from going to worship their God. Here Jesus is saying, come to me and I will provide for you these white garments, the righteousness of Christ. Revelation 3, 4 again, yet you still have a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments and they will walk with me in white. Jesus is beckoning this church that thought they were fine, saying, you're not, you need a righteousness you don't have. And that righteousness comes only from him. Come to me and get these white garments. Come to me and be truly righteous. And then finally, he counseled them to come to him for the salve for their eyes. This church was self-deceived. They were spiritually blind, thinking that they were fine when they really were anything but that. And so Jesus says, you need a remedy for your spiritual blindness. 1 Corinthians 2.14 1 Corinthians 2.14 says, The natural person does not accept the things of God for they are folly to him and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, the apostle Paul says, you know what the problem of unbelievers is, don't you? He says they are blinded by the God of this world. And the remedy for that is that the, the, the God of the universe, that Jesus Christ would shine the light of the gospel into their eyes, shine the light of gospel, the gospel into their hearts so that they would come to understand and have salvation. So Jesus is talking to them about the fact that you think you're saved when the reality is you're not. This is a self-deceived church. That's the lukewarmness here. Come to me. 
Get the pure gold. Get the salve for the eyes. Get the righteousness. True spiritual sight. You remember blind Bartimaeus? Such a, a great picture. Mark chapter 10. He's by the roadside and here's Jesus is coming. And I love this because I often picture myself as Bartimaeus. Because Bartimaeus, here's Jesus is coming and he's like, he, he's coming, I have to get him. He's by the roadside, he's blind, he can't see him, but he's calling out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me, a sinner. He recognizes his blindness. He recognizes his need. And he recognizes that Jesus is the only one that can meet that. And so he calls out in faith for Jesus to heal him, to, for Jesus to do what only Jesus can do. And Jesus comes to him, and Jesus heals him, and Bartimaeus follows him. That's what this church needed to do. They thought they were fine when really they were all blind Bartimaeus. Jesus' commendation at the end, he says, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. In other words, even you church, even this church so stagnant and lukewarm, I love you. And so I'm calling you to be zealous and repent. Verse 20, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. By the way, that's not a reference to him knocking on the door of your heart for salvation. In fact, if you go to Matthew 24, 33, Jesus says that he is at the gates ready to come. If you go to Luke 12, 36, the bridegroom, when he returns, is going to knock. If you go to James 5, 9, the judge is the one standing at the door. So when Jesus here says, behold, I stand at the door and knock, what he's saying is I'm getting ready to return. And I want you to be ready for me to come back so that you're ready to receive me and me receive you. And so this is a call for the church to deal with him and deal with him quickly. I love you. Be zealous and repent because I am coming quickly. And then he says, finally, the one who conquers, I will grant with him to sit with me on my throne. We'll reign with him in that millennial kingdom as we talked about last time as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. Again, normally one saves the best for last. But that's not what Jesus did with this letter. This was really in some ways, as far as the quality of the church goes, the worst for last. And yet there's much for us to learn. We don't want to be useless. We don't want to be stagnant. We don't want to be lifeless. We want to be cold and refreshing to the world around us and hot and healing as well. So let's make sure we set ourselves towards that end. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Christ, for salvation. We thank you for the, the pure gold of saving faith. We thank you for the, the rich purity of the whiteness of the, the, the righteousness that you provide for us in Christ. And we thank you for the salve for our eyes so that our eyes have been opened to understand and to see who Jesus is and our need for him. God, I pray that you would keep us a church that is free from any complacency, any compromise. God, I pray that we would not be here just to, to join the country club of Christianity and wait for your return, but that we would be here to, to do the work that you've set before your bride, the church, to be the hands and feet of Christ, the body of Christ here on earth, to fill up what was lacking in your afflictions, Lord, by going forth with the gospel to the ends of the earth. And so, God, let us be faithful towards that end and to be a lampstand that's always going to be busy doing that. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.